You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Jumping into this episode, which is a conversation with Eric Lorson, author of the recent AK Press title, The Operating System, an Anarchist Theory on the Modern State. I wanted to address a couple of questions that came my way about labor organizing, which were fairly similar questions seeking advice on how to overcome the misgivings of coworkers that don't want to put their coworkers' personal information into like a spreadsheet. So Early on in any organizing campaign, one of the most important things you got to do right off the bat is gather contacts. If you work at a place where in the break room they have a schedule posted with people's names and phone numbers, usually they do that at restaurants because if you are sick, you're often responsible for finding your replacement, so you have to have their numbers. Take a picture of that. Any way that you can get your hands on coworkers' contact info, even if it's just names at the beginning. You want to gather that information and put it in a secure spreadsheet that only you and your organizing committee have access to. Now, I've had this experience too, where you start talking about gathering information, people's home addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, non-work email addresses, by the way. And invariably, you're going to have somebody be like, "That's, that's weird. That makes me uncomfortable. I feel like I'm digging into somebody's private information. First, I want to ask for their permission before I put their phone number into the spreadsheet. I think a lot of that is valid, you know, knee-jerk reactions and early on, particularly for folks that are inexperienced with labor organizing. And my best recommendation is to just be committed to push people past their comfort zone. You know, you usually don't get there in one conversation, but in the first time that this conversation happens, you got to inoculate as well as push them past their comfort zone. And one great way of doing that is highlighting how bosses use your personal information against you. One of the first things that they're going to do as soon as they even catch a whiff of the organizing happening is they're going to snatch up all that contact information. The schedules that were posted in the break room, they're going to disappear. They're going to secure their computer systems to make sure that none of the workers can somehow gain access to it. Not only that, the bosses already have not only your home address, your phone number, etc. They also have your social security numbers. They can access your personal files. They can pull up medical reports about you. And they do. There's a great inoculation video floating around the interwebs. And if anybody wants access to it, I'd be happy to share it, where they imitate a 
private one-on-one conversation between a boss and one of the union organizers. And in the conversation, the boss is continuing to intimidate and threaten and use pressure against the organizer from wanting to build a union. And towards the end of it, what he does is he pulls her credit report and starts talking about all the medical debt that she has and whether or not she can really afford the risk of organizing. Could she afford to lose her job when she has all this medical debt? When I show that video to workers, they always ask, is that legal? Things like that. And it misses the point. It's not about whether it's legal or not for bosses to do that. It's about what they will do. They will place the burden on you and your organizing committee to withstand the illegal actions they take against you. Bosses break labor law all the time because, quite frankly, labor law, even when it's broken, often just results in a slap on the wrist for the boss. It's not enough of a sanction to prevent them from blatantly violating the law as much as possible. Just look at the Amazon vote in Bessemer, Alabama. They even built a damn mailbox that was fake so that they could surveil workers voting in a supposedly secret ballot election. Now, all that being said, I don't expect your coworker to overcome their misgivings and their awkward feelings about gathering contact information after the first one-on-one that you have with them. So you have to just continue to have those one-on-ones, keep pushing people past their comfort zone. And also point out that you don't currently have majority support for the union if you're early on in your campaign to the point that you don't actually have a list of your coworkers. And how are you supposed to get to majority support if you can't reach your coworkers outside of work? The main point is you don't have home field advantage. The boss does. It's the boss's workplace. You can't confine all your one-on-ones to being on the shop floor, and therefore you need a way and a means to get a hold of your coworkers outside of work. And you're going to have to talk to them frequently and regularly. So if you don't have access to their information, to their phone numbers at a minimum, how are you supposed to do that? So that's just some quick feedback for the folks submitting these questions. If you have any questions or things that you want to share about organizing campaigns you're a part of, send them our way at laborwavenews at gmail.com. We'll read the questions on our next episode, and I'll do my best to give thoughts and feedback on it, whether it's useful or not. With that, hope you enjoy the episode. Eric Larson, welcome to Labor Wave Radio. Thanks a lot, Alex. Glad to be here. You recently authored an AK Press title, title published by AK Press, I should say, titled The Operating System and Anarchist Theory of the Modern State. So I was really excited about this title because, as we were saying before we started recording, you don't get a lot of conversation about the state these days, like not like theories on the state or an analysis explaining what is meant by the state, but particularly from an anarchist perspective. I feel like everybody only knows the classical anarchist, you know, the, the classical anarchist talked about the state. And today it's like pretty much only the Marxist analysis of the state that is predominant. So with that in mind, you know, I'm excited to hear how you uh, break this down from an anarchist viewpoint. And the first place I wanted to start was just the title. So you described the state as an operating system, and I'm hoping that you can help elaborate for our listeners what you mean exactly by that. So what is the state? That's really is the key question. Let me back up a little bit, just because you gave some interesting history there about 
the conversation about the state that we've been having for the last 200 odd years or so. And uh, I think that the place to start is that is that it's true, is that opposition to the state is really sort of the defining thing of anarchism as a movement. It's what uh, it's the principal thing that divides it from Marxism. If you look at them both as sort of products of, uh, of socialism as a kind of a really, really general, you know, historical movement. But the, but the interesting thing about it is that except for some of the, the early anarchists, there hasn't been a lot of formal thinking about the state within the anarchist movement. There is some, but not really a lot. And, and in the last, you know, 50 odd years, it's really been the Marxists that have done a lot of heavy theorizing about the state. And as a result of that, I think we've absorbed, even people in the anarchist movement have absorbed a lot of the thinking that Marxists have about the state, you know, about what's really kind of the anarchist's own turf, if you think about it. Uh, so that leads us to do uh, one really fundamental thing is we kind of think of the state and capital, you know, I, as in big business, big banking, et cetera, et cetera, as being two separate things. There's the state and there's capital. And the state is this kind of neutral thing which can do all kinds of stuff if people take it over and make it do those things. It can be a force for good. It can be a force for evil. It can be totally captured by capital. It can be totally captured by the working class. And so the state is seen as this kind of non-problematic, neutral thing, whereas capital is where that's where the action is. That's where the the problem is, uh, is, is workers' relationship with capital is, is the problem. And what I'm trying to do with this, with my concept of the operating system is to break that down. Uh, so I start by making a distinction, uh, which is a little clunky maybe, between the state with a capital S and the state with a small s. Uh, the state with a small s is states, is the United States, is Germany, is Russia, is China, is Australia, is India, any of those particular states. The state with a capital S is a system. It's a way of organizing reality that we, we've had in this world for about 500 some years now that first appeared in Renaissance Europe and has spread all over the world. It's a system that all of these states with a small s collaborate in creating in defining it, in refining it, in uh, developing new ways for it to keep up with the times, new ways for it to be more effective. But they all buy into this basic system. They're, they all kind of serve this basic system called the state with a capital S. Now, where does capital, as in, as in money and business and all that, where does that fit into it? Well, Capital is one, of the, is one of the components of the state with a capital S. It's one of the things that defines it. It's one of the things that makes it go. It's part of, it's an essential part of its engine, but it's not something that has an independent existence. Capital or the capitalist system could not exist without the state. The state could not exist without capital. And I think this is where we get down to cases because what that means is you can't eliminate one without the other. You can't have the state without capital. You can't have capital without the state. They depend on each other. They are part of the same system. Now, the question then about where does the title of my book come in? Why is this an operating system as opposed to, some, to just a human system? Well, 
The answer to that is that that arose from me trying to answer a more fundamental question about what is the state with a capital S? Is it just a set of institutions? Is it a set of buildings? You know, when you think of the state, we tend to think of big buildings with Roman columns, you know, the Supreme Court or the Capitol building or uh, big modern buildings down in Brasilia, which is the capital of Brazil. Or in, there's a kind of a, a sense that, that, the, that the system tries to give us that this is a very powerful physical structure when actually the state is an idea. It's an, it's, it's an idea acted upon by human beings. Now, how does that make it an operating system? Well, since the, the days when the state was kind of modern state, I mean, not there's been states throughout a couple of two, three thousand years of human history, if not more. But I'm talking specifically about the modern state that we started to have 500 years ago when, the, when you know, states like in, in Europe, like England, France, Spain, et cetera, started to really kind of cohere. And it's an operating system because it works on people. It's, it's a, as I said earlier, it's a way of organizing reality. The state consists of a set of institutions which are there to manage populations. They're there to extend the power of the institution itself. And they're there to engineer economic growth. And this is the key thing when we're talking about the state, the modern state, is that the modern state came, came around at a time when uh, rulers of European states were looking for ways to expand their power geographically and to deepen their power over their own populations. And what they realized or what was gradually realized was that the most the, the critical way to do this, if you want to make war, if you want to uh, extract wealth, if you want to tax your population, is to foster economic growth. And that's where capital comes in, uh, because the state essentially sees capital as an engine for, for um, producing more economic growth or, or evoking more economic growth. And this is, where, this is where that intense partnership comes in. Uh, one of the things, I, the way I put it in my book is that the state was the original capitalist, and it's still the biggest, uh, because whatever uh, independent existence corporations have they all serve to enlarge and extend this thing called the state. Now, uh, to zero in again on your question is, what is it that caused me to make this analogy between a computer operating system and the state? Why is that, why is that uh, a useful way to think about this? Well, the reason is because if you look at, at a computer operating system, uh, you know, Microsoft or uh, Apple, iOS, any of these systems, Linux, any of these systems, what they all attempt to do uh, through, through their own operation and through the, the different applications that are uh, created for them is they attempt to kind of um, manage our reality or create a larger reality for us. Each of them, you know, I, I, I used to say to myself that the, the, the common denominator of Windows or of uh, Mac operating systems is they all want to be our dashboard. They want to do everything for us that you can possibly do on a computer, and then to extend themselves by incorporating more things we do in the physical world into the environment that we see on our computer screen. And so there's an attempt to kind of create an all-encompassing reality for us digitally. 
And that's exactly what the state attempts to do, what the state and capital, which is its economic driver, attempt to do. Uh, the state is our system of laws. It's our system of security or defense. It organizes and gives a focal point to our culture, to our you know, language, to uh, citizenship, all of the things that go into identifying us as individuals, giving us a, a landscape to operate in, and giving us a sense of identity of who we are and where we're from, and to channel the things we do, work, uh, recreation, and so forth, all through that identity. It's a profound thing, and this is really the power of the state with a capital S, is to define our reality for us. Operating systems do the same, and there's no coincidence there, uh, in a way, because the uh, digital economy that we operate in increasingly these days is something that really was uh, engineered in its early stages by the private sector in close collaboration with government. So much of what we of of, of the environment that we uh, that we see and that we experience online had its origins in projects that the government, for various reasons, attempted to uh, to launch, especially in the years right after the Second World War, which no coincidence was when the United States was reimagining itself as a, as the global hegemon, a single state that would have the critical role in the rest of the world. There's a sense in which an operating system is, the state is an operating system, and it projected its goals and its ideals and its uh, molding of reality into the digital world. There's a tight connection there. And I think it's useful to us to think about it this way, because it prompts us to look critically at our environment and to think about what is it about the world that we live in that is truly ours? And what is it about the world that we live in that was essentially engineered or directed or nudged in a certain direction? What kind of uh, a system do our ideas translate into before they get to other people? Uh, and increasingly, the, the media is something people used to talk about in that way. But the digital environment we have today is much more encompassing than the traditional media were. It's entirely how we, almost entirely how we communicate with each other these days. And so that's where you get this connection between the state and the operating system. I really want to hone in on what you're talking about, how the state shapes our reality, shapes us as people. Because in the article that you wrote for Aurora Magazine, you had this sentence about how people created the state, right? But then the state started operating on us, like you're describing just now. And uh, weird as it may sound, I started thinking about The Terminator, you know, the movie with like Skynet, like the people created Skynet. And then, and this is always the warning in all these sci-fi technology dystopias is the technology that we created becomes uh, conscious and autonomous and starts executing us and taking over, right? And it almost sounds to me like you're describing a process in which this is what we've done by creating the state. So I kind of want to wonder, like, I want to ask you the question of, in thinking about the state as an operating system, is it fair to say that the state has gained that level of autonomy over us? Like the state is this dominating force that has that amount of power, almost like a Terminator power? Well, it, it, it's, it's never complete. The state is an ongoing project. It's something that is constantly trying to uh, take the next step forward and anticipate 
where there are cracks in its armor or where it's still possible for people to organize their reality outside of the state. It's constantly sensitive to that. And when it sees people doing it or communities doing it, it does its best to sort of co-opt them and pull them back in or to define things so that an alternative community finds itself communicating and thinking and expressing itself through the state or through a medium that's acceptable to the state because it's easier. That's the seductive thing about the digital world is it makes it easier for us to do so many things. It makes it superficially at least easier to communicate, to create even. And that's always been true of the state, that, that it's always easier to accept its you know, benign role, supervisory role in our lives, rather than to fight it. And aren't there so many things that we can do even if we do accept it anyway? Well, you know, maybe so, but we're, we're still losing our autonomy. So that's really, that's really kind of the point is, is the state doesn't want to have communities or individuals or social relationships that, that it doesn't inform or define. That's the problem there. I've often talked about this, I think, in a similar way as you. When you're talking about the state shaping our reality, it's not a complete process, right? It's not a, it's not a full totality but it seeks totality. And uh, one of the things that I really liked about your article was how you described the monopolies of the state. Clearly, we know the state has a monopoly on legitimate violence. That was like the famous Max Weber description of it. Um, and you talk about that too. But you also take length to explain how the state really does shape our conception of ourselves, our realities. I've described this as like the state having a monopoly over our imagination. And I wonder what you think about that. Like, how much is the state project a project of dominating the political imagination? Yeah, there's, some, there's a lot of challenging things in what you're asking there. And let, let me just start out by saying that the, the state doesn't just have a monopoly of legitimate violence, uh, that covertly uh, it has a great deal of control over illegitimate violence too. The CIA and other agencies have, have worked repeatedly with drug dealers, with terrorists, with all kinds of groups that the state does not officially regard as legitimate, but that can uh, that have something to offer the state in a particular situation. So there's there's a kind of a murky side to this too that's that's very real. But your question is how does the state dominate our imagination? You know, you gave a, a partial answer a few minutes ago with this analogy with the Terminator and the kind of scenario that was created there. Uh, there's another one that I, I kind of resisted for a while, but I think is useful, which is this movie some years ago called The Truman Show, where you had a person whose who's literally whose life was a reality show. His life was lived on a set. He had no idea that he was a character in a drama. He lived what he thought was a full life. And people watched him have this life. And the idea there was essentially there was something, there was something very full about it, but there was something missing. And he starts to wonder whether there isn't something beyond what he was seeing every day. And the story spins out in a fairly benign way. But really, that is, I think that epitomizes what the state wants to do. The state's job, if in a really fundamental way, is to manage populations such that it can extract wealth, uh, military force, other resources out of it. And so the state has a vested interest in our family structure, in our, our work habits, in our uh, geographic movements, in our um, imaginations and what comes out of our imaginations. 
ultimately that's for a purpose of creating more wealth for the state, more economic growth, which allows us to enlarge its power. This isn't a new, I should say, this isn't a new idea specifically in, in anarchist circles is that Rudolf Rocker, who was one of the real pioneering figures in the movement in the late 19th, early 20th century, used to say that government, which is in his view was the state, it's something that is created uh, by human beings, but it, then it takes on a kind of a logic of its own. And I think that that's actually one thing that a lot of people who've thought a lot about the state, including people on the Marxist side, aren't always willing to accept that the state has a kind of an, it acquires a kind of an agency that it didn't necessarily have before. And that once you become involved with the state, and I think this is really important, especially for people in the labor movement to think about, is that once you get involved in uh, working through the state or running the state or being involved in its operation in any way, it becomes your job becomes to build the state. You, you may go in thinking that your job is to change it, make it more responsive, limit it, but really your job is to build the state. Uh, and that is where you get into dangerous territory, where all of a sudden you, you, your, your, your own mission, your own reason for doing it starts to slip away. You know, you, you take the, uh, the, the person who gets elected Congress to promote the rights of working people or create more real power in the workplace for working people, and you find yourself voting to spend trillions of dollars on a forever war in Iraq. Well, where does that come from? That comes from making deals, but it also comes from the fact that once you're in there, your job is to build the state and to extend it and to, to make it more powerful. So people who have no idea that's what they're doing wind up in the business of building the state. I feel like you said, I'm glad that you brought up organized labor because I feel like we're seeing this in real time. I mean, we always see it in organized labor, the uh, kind of subordination to the state. And there's a rich history and a lot of debate about when that process really was like fully realized. I think many on the wobbly side of things, and I tend to agree with this, look at the National Labor Relations Act as kind of that full expression of the state just taking control of organized labor. Which everybody thought was a big victory for the labor movement, but... <laughs> right, right. But, you know, and maybe that's some like benefits of hindsight, but, you know, regardless, I think today we're seeing, again, another uh, illustration of this with the Biden administration and their big push to they keep calling it build back better. You know, this is their slogan for right now. And in union circles that I've been in, there's a lot of enthusiasm for this program to build an infrastructure to kind of go back to like a New Deal type of public works program. And some of that I understand and find it appealing myself. But when you really look at it, you realize that the program is to get unions vested in the national interest of the United States, right? And like you're describing, that really has the simultaneous outcome of expanding the state with a capital S, right? So I wonder if you could just speak about that a little bit more about how like today, what it looks like on a practical level to expand the state is to attach yourself to certain national interests or other state interests, particularly for unions. Right. Uh, well, uh, let, me let me go back uh, a little bit just to, to put this in perspective a bit which would be to say that um, this, is, this is not a new discussion in labor circles. In the early 20th century, Samuel Gompers, who was a pioneering labor head of the AFL, AFL and so forth, 
was actually against national health care and against uh, a national pension system when Social Security and national health were being discussed because he said it would make the labor movement beholden to the state, that the labor movement would direct all of its attention towards uh, cultivating and extending these benefits, which are run through the state, and it would lose its independence. It would stop thinking of itself as oppositional to the established order. And he felt that it needed to not only be outside, but it, it should take care of its own members, that those are benefits that the labor movement should be providing for its own members so they have some independence of the system, so that the state doesn't kind of insinuate itself into their lives. Now, I've written about the history of Social Security, and I, I don't see the Social Security system as a bad thing. It represented progress at the time. And, you know, uh, by the 1930s, people were saying that Gomper's view was old-fashioned and out of touch with the reality of the world, which is the state is what there is. That was kind of the attitude by that time, whether you were a communist, whether you're a New Dealer or whatever. Today, the problem is that so much of the labor movement's energy is focused on uh, the state, on trying to get the state to do the right thing, trying to get it to go back to the New Deal era or the Great Society era, rather than on organizing and thinking of itself as autonomous. Uh, and this is the real problem, that there's been various attempts over the last 30 years or more to re-energize organizing within the mainstream labor movement, within the AFL-CIO and uh, uh, union, unions in its orbit. And it's, it has not been that effective. Where it has been effective is, for example, in poorer communities or communities of color, you, know, just, you think justice for janitors, for example, or the Imakali workers, where it's not just a union, it is a social movement. Uh, when the labor movement is not connected with the social movement, it starts to die. And that's essentially what happened in the decades, uh, particularly the NLRB, but then decades after the Taft-Hartley Act, which I think was the key moment when the state essentially turned against the labor movement. That's something that's been going on for almost 50 years now, for over 50 years. And a lot of people in the mainstream labor movement have not come to terms with it. Uh, they, they, they think, you know, all we have to do is win a few more elections and we can uh, get the state behind us again, get the government behind us again, and we will start to make progress. But whether you're an anarchist or not, uh, making progress with the state should not be considered to be the first goal you have in mind. It should be creating a social movement, finding social movements to ally itself with, and building a, a grassroots mobilization that is able to wield power and is able to essentially uh, jam the machinery uh, when it needs to or when it, uh, when it wants to make its own steps forward. So that's, that's the kind of the fundamental thinking, I think, that, that needs to change. With our conversation so far, I feel like a lot of people listening can potentially get overwhelmed by the very prospects of combating the state, because as you mentioned, the state shapes reality, but also part of that is the state absorbs opposition. When we're talking about labor organizing, like unions in particular, that's a very obvious example of how the state has absorbed what was once a militant oppositional force into its daily rhythms. So how do we go about doing combat with the state without getting 
easily absorbed and co-opted into the state? I know that's probably the hardest question of them, right? But I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this. The, the first thing is that I, I, I think is that the labor movement organizers, people in the labor movement, let me reiterate one thing first, is that they need to think of themselves as organizers within a social movement, within communities uh, of labor. That's essential. That's where their identity should be. Secondly, they, they need to think of themselves as outside of the, I guess what you'd say is the economic discourse between the state and capital. Uh, that's something that does not include them, and they're only allowed in there when they create major trouble. And so uh, what that means is that labor needs to focus on organizing in the workplace, first of all, the social movement, secondly, bringing that, the uh, energy from that into, the, into workplaces and confronting capital, confronting management. Uh, now, what that means is, frankly, is reclaiming some of the tactics that have been uh, legislated or adjudicated out of existence over the last 70 years. Wildcat strikes, uh, secondary boycotts, uh, many of the, the, the most effective things that unions can do are essentially uh, you know, that they were doing uh, back in the 1930s when union organizing had its real heyday are illegal now. And that is something that has traditionally been for the most part respected by union movements. It should not be. These are things that were put in there to hamstring labor, and labor needs to start thinking about how it can, not just how it can uh, make itself heard, but how it can bring the system to a halt. You know, the the general strike uh, was something that was not an uncommon thing. It's it's something that had happened multiple times in the 30s. And uh, that, again, was the period where labor was really strong and was able to organize effectively. Unions need to reach out to other communities of workers to support them. They need to organize boycotts. They need to organize general strikes. There needs to be a kind of an outreach between communities of workers. There's a kind of a tendency for the, and this was something that the Wobblies attempted to address, was the, the, the tendency of people who work in one industry or one for one employer to isolate and to think their quarrel is only with these people. But the best way to organize is to start to work with people in other industries or other uh, other geographic you know, factory areas and to pull them into the struggle as well. And this is where we sudden, suddenly you start to have a movement that can change society, that can change the entire system, not just uh, negotiate a better contract. And if you want to negotiate a better contract, you'd still better have a movement that can change society because otherwise you're not respected. And that contract better not adjudicate away your ability to strike uh, and have any control over the shop floor, which is another key debate in labor circles today. But, you know, going a little bit back to our earlier part of our conversation where we we're discussing some of the distinctions of the anarchist movement and like traditional Marxist movement yeah. was the question of the state. And the anarchists, uh, I still like the slogan, right? It was always smash the state. That was the objective. You got to smash the state. And I think what they meant was like the state with a capital S, like you're describing it. Right. So for today, like, what does it mean to smash the state? I want to hear like what you imagine that could look like smashing the state, but also for people that are really skeptical, talk about, you know, what are the possibilities 
of organizing society in a way that doesn't look like a state? Okay, so that's two questions. That's first, how do you oppose it now? And then how do you start thinking about something you can put in its place? I think there's actually one answer to both of those questions, which is that you don't start with a political revolution. You start with a social revolution. And that has to be a social revolution that's organized outside the state with the capital S. And so you start to create cooperative communities. You, 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 you start on a basic level. You do all the things that help you to build a social movement or a so, uh, outside of the institutions that we have. That's not going to always work. It's not going, you're not going to set up cooperatives that will necessarily go for 50 years, but you set up ones that can then others can learn from and you get a kind of a, a, a pattern going or a, a, a momentum going. Now, how does that get into actually confronting the state? Well, the state will try to co-opt these sorts of things. I mean, even the cooperative movement to some extent has a certain legal standing and a certain uh, ability to work within the state. You have to start making demands. Uh, you have to start making, uh, the way I put it in my book is reasonable demands that are treated as unreasonable. You can start with, for example, taking action against climate change. This is the interesting part, is that even if uh, the movement against climate change works within the state, it's actually a challenge to the state itself, because my belief is that the state is incapable of addressing climate change, because in order to do so, it would have to, it would have to modify its focus on economic growth. And that's something it can't do. It can never bring itself to do. And so if you want to make progress against climate change, you have to start thinking about shutting down institutions or enterprises or businesses that profit from pollution. And you have to be willing to confront them directly and analyze them as part of a system that is fundamentally opposed to bringing about the kind of change we want to see. Uh, racism is another thing. Uh, one of the analyses I do in my book is of what I call the core identity group, which is every state has an, has an ethnic group or a collection of ethnic groups that are kind of its core support or its core patriotic backing. Uh, and those groups are the, are the, they're the one group that the, that the state pulls its leadership from. They're the group that the state feels it needs to appeal to in order to maintain itself in power. So in the United States, obviously, you have white people broadly defined. And what this gets back to is that you have to do the analysis and you have to understand that the state is not going to eliminate racism. It's not going to eliminate ethnic preference for white people. These things are not going to happen within the purview of the state. Uh, it's not in its interest to do so. It'll give it lip service and bend a little, but it won't go all the way. So what I'm really getting down to saying is that whether it's the interests of labor or the interests of people of color or the interests of women, uh, you have to be willing to confront the state in ways that the state is not going to respond to. And you then have to think about organizing outside it. And then you have to think about overthrowing it. It's a process. We're not going to have 50 million people go out tomorrow and say, and say smash the state. What we are going to have, I hope, is 50 million people realizing and then putting into action the fact that they have to bring about the change themselves. And that in order to bring about that change, the state has to be pushed aside. And that's where the political revolution comes in. 
Uh, you start with the social revolution and then you go to the political. Before getting to the second part of that question about what, could, what a stateless society could look like, what you're saying reminds me of the arguments of like John Holloway and like crack capitalism, where he talked about the cracks in the system. And it sounds like you might have some affinity here. So I'm just curious to hear if you do or not. But I recall him describing things like community gardens, cooperatives as the cracks in the system. And his analysis was the way to fight capitalism in the state was to expand these cracks, connect them and scale them up. And I think the challenge was always like, well, that sounds great, a community garden, like in Detroit, we see some of those flourishing, but it's not enough, right? So like, how do these things actually scale up? So that's another two-part question, but are you kind of talking about it in similar ways to like Holloway and crack capitalism, but also like, how do these things scale up uh, in your imagination? Well, yeah, there is an affinity there, definitely. The way I see them scaling up is when people on a local level start to think global, uh, think globally, act locally. What we need to do the other is at the same time, frankly, is uh, once we realize that what we're doing in a community garden, for example, is in a small way an effort to create a society that is not going to destroy itself through climate change, uh, we start to think about the forces that are continuing to push us towards that precipice. And then we start thinking about linking up and we think about what possibly could we do if we can't get rid of the institutions that are working against us. We have to have a realization that we can't just organize on the side, that we have to, that, that the state itself has to, has to give way to us. Again, it's, it's people doing the analysis, people communicating. Uh, the scaling up is really what you, what you just described there. It's people organizing on a local level and then linking up with other movements. And that's where it starts. And we have seen that in some instances. I mean, the, the, the movement to, to do something or to, to respond to climate change is something that's, that's gone global. Much of it is or will get co-opted. Uh, but we need, to, we need to sort of spread the analysis that cooperating is being co-opted. And that's not something that's going to get us where we want to go. So it's, there's a kind of a need to address people's consciousness and how they think. And that comes with education and with a kind of an effort to spread the word throughout groups that are organizing locally. And that, frankly, is how uh, changes has, has come in the last 50 years historically, to the, ex the extent to which El Salvador was freed of death squads, at least uh, to some extent, had to do with people organizing there, linking up with people in the United States and other places around the world and bringing attention to it. We need to sort of take that to another level where we're not just making people aware, but we're organizing. Well, I'm thinking about a stateless society after the social and, and then political revolution. To my mind, I can think of a couple of different works of visionary fiction or speculative fiction, you might I hear what some people call it. One of them is um, the classic Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. What's interesting about that is it's a vision of an anarchist moon society based on scarcity, right? It's like a scarcity society. So you have to have cooperative anarchist society based on the fact that there's really limited resources to go around. So that's one vision of the future. Uh, and it might be more relevant today in thinking about global climate change. But the other one I could think of is Starhawk, the fifth sacred element. And that's an anarchism. I, I guess you could call it an anarchism 
built around abundance. And so these are kind of two differing visions of a stateless society. And I wonder what you think of those visions and what you think maybe is more the relevant vision that we should have in our mind about what a stateless society could look like. As as often happens uh, when it comes to people who are other people in the anarchist movement or, or, or associated with it who tend to think a little differently from each other, I tend to come down a little bit in between. I think that it makes a lot of sense for us to think about organizing on the assumption that, that there's a society of scarcity, that we need to think about resources we have and how to distribute them. But I don't think that we should assume that the, the society we build after the state is going to be one of scarcity, period. We can have an abundant society. I don't think that there's ever been a a period in the history of the world where there wasn't enough food, enough vital resources to go around. It's always been a problem of distribution. And it's been a problem of who decides what's important. Uh, I think we can have an abundant society. One of the fundamental things I think when it comes to organizing uh, for resistance or organizing for a new society is that we need, to, we need to find a way to respect people's, individuals' needs and desires, that some people's needs and desires should not be placed over someone else's just because they come from a prominent family or they have a lot of monetary wealth or they have traditionally been from some group that uh, gets precedence, that we need to, ultimately, we, what we need to do Uh, is to have a, as humans, is to have a better way of understanding and uh, discussing and responding to each other's needs and desires. And if we can do that, we can have a society of abundance. Uh, We we just need to sort of keep that that focus. And that's really, uh, I think, where a lot of the opposition to the state can come in, uh, because we need to we need to understand where our needs and desires are different from those of the people who are imposing theirs on us. So that that's not just a, a matter of uh, building opposition now, but of building a better society after the state. Well, I want to bring us to a conclusion here. And so on that topic that we were just discussing, I can imagine folks listening might have questions around like, what are some practical examples of this? And you speak about some of them in your Roar Magazine article. I imagine they're elaborated on the book. So for folks that are maybe skeptical or questioning, totally valid, uh, what examples would you point them to? One I would point to, uh, again, is the movement of the uh, Immokali workers, uh, which had a powerful effect in terms of changing the way the food industry works. I would say that the important thing to take away from that exa- example is not only that you can have it, you can have an impact, but you can take that initial victory and build on it into something bigger. And that's what we need to, you know, what we need to think about is how do we move beyond specific demands into demands for, to change the system? And uh, that starts with thinking about it the other way around, which is how do we turn our desire to change the fundamental system, uh, the, the system in a fundamental way? How do we translate that into, into specific goals? And specific goals that essentially present a bigger challenge to the state. That's kind of how it works. Uh, uh, one of my favorite examples actually is the work that, uh, that Greenpeace did in its early days, when essentially 
it was saying to country to governments that were doing nuclear tests, you cannot do these without killing us. We are going to be wherever you are, where you want to do these things, and we're going to stop you. There has to be a kind of a, a philosophy of insurrection, because that's essentially what they were doing, whether they whether that was it was stated that way or not, was they were creating small insurrections. That is what justice for janitors did. It wasn't just a matter of taking on people who weren't used to union organ uh, employers who weren't used to union organizers, confronting them, and uh, essentially creating an insurrection within their facilities, you know, uh, within the, within their workplaces. And I think that that that's really kind of the the litmus test I have is can this be seen as simply a protest or can it be seen as an insurrection? Is it an attempt to say, we are going to defy your control over our lives? If the answer to that is yes, then that's something that can bring about real change. Our guest has been Eric Larson, author of the recent book, The Operating System and Anarchist Theory of the Modern State. You can get it at akpress.org and very likely at your local anarchist info shop, you know, however many it might exist. Even a few quote unquote legitimate bookstores too. Yeah. I'm sure you could get it at Pals if you're on the uh, the Oregon area and all the bookstores, but you know, support your local one. Well, whatever. I'm not going to say support your local bookstores. <laughs> that would go way against my creed here, but appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And I really encourage folks to read the book and take anarchist views of the state more seriously. Thanks so much, Alex. Hey, listeners, thanks for listening to Labor Wave Radio. We're an independent podcast sustained by subscribers to our Patreon. So if you enjoy the show, please become a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts including stickers, original illustrated zines, and Labor Wave t-shirts. If you can't afford to support the show in monetary ways, you can still support us by following us on various social media platforms. Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud, and please leave us a rating and review because that helps us reach new listeners. If you have any questions or comments, ideas that you want to pitch to Labor Wave Radio, you can get in contact with us by emailing laborwavenews at gmail.com.